Amen, Lord. Your love is so beyond any words that we can describe. We love you, Father. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for being here this morning, being in our lives. We lift up our voices to you. We pray that uh, what we sang this morning pleased you. Put a smile on your face, Lord. For it's in your son's precious saving name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning we want to talk about prayer. And I don't know, if we were to give it a summary, we might say that prayer is to the spirit and to our emotions what breathing is to the body. It's a critical part of our health. In fact, I think Rick Warren is a pastor and a best-selling author. I think Rick Warren was right when he said, the more you pray, the less you panic. There are not only those kinds of emotional benefits to us, but there's something about both connecting to who we really are and becoming who we really are that cannot happen apart from a life of prayer. So prayer is critically important to us. Prayer is also like art in that it's the simplest possible thing. It's the simplest spiritual exercise, but we can never fully plumb the depths of it. We can continue to learn more and more about prayer. The author and philosophy professor and spiritual guru, Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard used to say that in order to pray effectively, you had to have VIP. You had to have vision. So you had to know that prayer works. You had to have a sense of what it was and and what it was about and that it was effective. Secondly, you had to have the intention. You had to want to pray. And that is supplied to us by God. And thirdly, you had to have a plan. How are you going to pray? Because many of us fail at prayer because we don't really have a plan. So this morning's exercise is going to help us with that third part. It's going to help us with the plan part. We're going to look at a really rich passage from the Apostle Paul where he's writing to a group of his friends in an ancient city called Thessalonica and a place where he actually started a church, and many of these people that he's writing to, they sort of owe their connection to God and their spiritual heritage. They owe it to the Apostle Paul. So he's writing back to them to kind of check up on them and also to help them along in the journey. Now, Paul, when you read Paul, he's the back two-thirds of the New Testament. And when you read Paul, the Apostle Paul sometimes sounds like a lawyer, and sometimes he sounds like a a well-educated rabbi. And sometimes he sounds like an old school evangelist. So uh, be forewarned, today is one of those passages where he sounds like an old school evangelist. We're actually going to look at a prayer from the Apostle Paul that he launches into. Part of this is explainable by, this is kind of the form of letters in the ancient Near East, but it's also carefully crafted, both as benediction, giving glory to God, and also instruction to them, and also heartfelt from just out of his own deepest heart for these Thessalonians. So we learn quite a bit about prayer that I think this morning, this little exercise will help us know something about planning for prayer in our own lives. Now, I know you can't see this, but today, this passage really helps us build a framework for prayer. I'm going to tape some phrases up here. Again, I know you can't see them, but the visual is here to kind of guide and to help keep this in mind for us. Today, I literally think this passage will help us build an appropriate 
framework for our prayers. It's one example and a very good one and a God-honoring one for pouring our prayer into. It provides a plan for us. So we're looking at 2 Thessalonians. Now this is one of those little books in the back of the New Testament. Way to the back. I'd love for you to find 2 Thessalonians if you have a Bible. That's easy if, this, if you're using your phone. It will also be on the screen, but we're going to pick this apart this morning, so you won't be able to do that unless you have it open in front of you. I'd love for you to have it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and this is really how he launches his letter to these Thessalonians with this rich prayer for them. Let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 12. Here's what I want you to catch when we go through this. Remember, we're building a framework for prayer. One verse, kind of toward the end of it, he's going to give us the substance of his prayer, which is equally informative, and we'll talk about that real quick. But I want you to really listen for the framework that he builds. He's going to start by just thanking God. That thanks is important. Notice as we go through this, and what's so important, and the reason I want to underscore it and bold it, Two-thirds of the way through the passage, verse 11, he's going to say, with this in mind, and he's going to launch into what he actually prays for, the substance of his prayer. So what's he got in mind? Well, he's got in mind everything that came before, and he's let us know that all that came before it at the beginning of this, that thanksgiving and that epic sense of their destiny, that's the framework that he's building for prayer. So let's read together. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we, just, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring, because it's been difficult for you, I know. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that, that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, you may be seated. So with this in mind, again, Paul is building the framework for prayer for us, so he begins with thanksgiving. I'm going to tape these up here, so be patient with me. Again, I know you can't see them but it's a visual aid to help us. So the first part of Paul's framework for prayer was thanksgiving. And this thanksgiving forms a critically important component of Paul's framework. It's how he sets his heart and mind in prayer. But I want you to notice 
what he's thankful for. We're coming up to Thanksgiving, and usually at some point during Thanksgiving, we'll sit around a table. We do at our house anyway. It's usually sponsored by Diane. We'll sit around the house at our table, and Diane will say, okay, everybody say something you're thankful for. And it's an easy time to be thankful because I'm there with Diane and, and our three boys. The last few years, we've been celebrating Thanksgiving with Diane's larger family, and they're kooky, but they're also a lot of fun. So it's a great time to be thankful. And I'm always thankful for family, and I genuinely am. And the kinds of things that I'm typically thankful for, and these are all good things. I'm thankful that God gave me a hot wife, and she's still hot. I'm thankful for my children, and I'm thankful, you know, that we still have a relationship. I'm thankful that they're here today. Lord, they're not here today, by the way, but it's Thanksgiving, and I'm, I'm thankful that they're here today, and that's all appropriate. But I want you to notice, I've realized as I've worked through this this week that what that Thanksgiving is about is I'm really thankful for all that these people do for me. I'm really thankful for how these people make me feel. But the Apostle Paul noticed he's thankful for the stuff that God is doing in the lives of his friends. He's thankful, first of all, that their faith is growing more and more. The Thessalonians are not the kind of people who are content to be known as spiritual people. They're not content to have come to a place where they believe the Jesus story that Paul told them. No, they're growing in that faith. They're more faithfully attendant to the Jesus story. They're becoming more and more like Jesus themselves and more committed to following his pattern for living and to sharing that pattern for living with others. And this is what Paul is thankful for. So I've been reminded this week that I need, to be, I need to be thankful for how God is working in Diane's life. How Diane is becoming, as we grow older, she's really becoming more and more like Jesus. There are even some idiosyncrasies, Jesus might call them sin patterns in her life, that I see growing and getting better in the way she relates to me and the way she relates to others and our children, and the way she thinks of material things. Paul is also thankful that their love for one another is increasing. This is always the way it is among those who follow Christ. Jesus told his disciples, they'd know that we're Christians, and they'll know you're Christians by your love. And this is still the hallmark of the church today. We're not perfect at it, but virtually everywhere that the people of Jesus gather in his name, they're learning to love one another more and more. And this happens not because we have a common cause, or common life circumstances, although that's sometimes the case. But this love grows among us because this is how God works among us. It's what he does. This is his primary concern. So I need to be thankful for you. Most of you who are connected to Gateway, you know that for the last two weeks, we've got some important things to vote about after church today. We've got two of the most important votes we've, we've ever had here at Gateway. And I've been, over the last two weeks, going to every one of our small groups and talking about these votes. And different ones of the small groups, you have blessed me. And I'm, I really am deeply honored and thankful for that. I'm humbled. I'm humbled by the new families that seem to be connecting here at Gateway. Often, I think, you know, I meet some of you, you're pretty sharp. I honestly think you ought to know better. There are better places. But I'm humbled that you're connecting here. But a lot of that is about how that makes us feel. But I need to be more and more thankful that I see God's love increasing among you, and I do. I promise you I'm so sorry once in a while some of you will complain about even the past the peace time that we have in our service. We continue to do that because Christians have done that for thousands of years, so get over it. But the second reason that we continue to do it is because I just love to see God's people connecting with one another. It's awesome to see your love for one another growing, and I'm so thankful. Thirdly, Paul is thankful that the Thessalonians are persevering under trial. 
And this thanks is so exuberant that Paul doesn't keep it private. He says he brags about it to other churches. Look how the grace of God is operating among those Christian friends of mine in Thessalonica. Even in spite of severe difficulty, they continue to trust in God and to grow in faith and in love. And this is true for many of you. We aren't thankful enough for that between ourselves in our relationships with one another. I have known Rob and Evie Showers for 119 years. We went to college together. I was seven. They were much older when we went to college. But I have watched Rob and Evie over the years persevere through joys, and that's difficult to do. They have at times in their lives made a lot of money, and they've persevered. They continue to be generous. They've given their money to God's causes. They've had difficulty. They've seen people die. They've seen family members die, and they've stayed. They've stayed in the faith. They've stayed connected to me. They've stayed connected to you. They have continued to persevere in Jesus. I have known some of you in this congregation for 15 or more years, and you've stayed connected to God through difficulty. Parents have died. Marriages have been very, very difficult, and you've stayed connected. You've persevered. Not always perfectly, but you've hung on. I'm so deeply thankful. This kind of thanksgiving should form a part of the framework for our prayers. When we set that as the framework for how we pray, it brings things into order. Now, secondly, a second part of Paul's framework for prayer is formed by his confidence in their eternal destiny. And this is the old school evangelist part of the Apostle Paul. I heard an illustration years ago about a guy who lived in Hawaii, and he was a huge Dallas Cowboys fan, which mystery to me. But And because he was in Hawaii, usually when he got around to watching the games, of course, the game live would already be over. So he was such a huge fan, he would get incredible. This was during the 90s when the Cowboys were actually a decent team, and he would listen, often he said, on his way to church to what had happened in the game. So he'd know the final score. And they'd give some little quick wrap-up, you know, Troy Aikman passed for 250 yards and Emmett Smith ran for two touchdowns in the fourth quarter and the Dallas Cowboys won by 10. So he would tape the game and that night he would sit down and watch the Cowboys game and he never got nervous. Even if they got down by 17 points in the second quarter, he was never nervous because he knew the end of the game. And this is what Paul is saying in his prayer. We know the end. We know the eternal destiny. Verse 5, he says, all of this stuff that I'm thankful for, this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Paul's friends aren't worthy because they've earned the right to enter the kingdom of God. They're worthy because Jesus has made them worthy, and their perseverance is just evidence of that fact. Okay, there are two sides to Paul's confidence, and we have to cover this. First of all, for those who have a connection to God, for those who are believers, they will ultimately be counted worthy, and they will be given relief. He says in verses 6 and 7, he goes epic. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who have troubled you and give relief to you when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. All that has troubled these Thessalonians Christians, all their difficulties and sufferings will come to, the, to an end. In fact, they will be swallowed up in the glory of God's kingdom. Look, 
We don't know how much of Paul's language in this passage here is figurative and how much of it is literal, but we do know that consistently, don't miss this, consistently, God's people have seen visions concerning time ending. God's people have come to a common understanding that history will come to an end, that reality as we know it is headed in a straight line toward an ultimate climax. And at that point, Jesus will be universally recognized for what he is, and the followers of Jesus will be gathered and liberated and glorified. They will be literally transformed. Now, I know it's increasingly foreign to us to think about such things today, especially for those of us whose faith tends to be more cerebral. But we would be wise to consider what the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson said about this, about this passage. I think we should take his words as a warning. D.A. Carson said this, In this passage, there is a real sense of expectancy that is increasingly lacking in many circles in the West. Not many years ago, Christians fought over eschatology. And eschatology is a fancy word that just means the understanding and the study of things that happen at the end of history when reality is rolled up and God becomes God over everything and Jesus is king. Today, few of us are willing to fight over such niceties. Now, there's been a commendable gain in tolerance, but we've lost something as well, he says. Succumbing to overreaction to too much emphasis on eschatology, many of us have jettisoned not only divisiveness over details, but also even interest in what is central. We're losing our anticipation of the Lord's return, the anticipation that Paul shows is basic to his thought and prayer. Even though we may not reject central truths, for many of us, their power has been eviscerated. Their power has been gutted. And by the way, what we've lost through our lack of interest in this belief is great. For us individually, what's happened is that we tended to be invested more and more in here and now. And what the Bible says is clearly passing and unsatisfying, and we have ignored an investment in heaven where our investment is secure and solid. So the second part of the way Paul frames his prayer is confidence in eternity. Now, Paul has confidence that these Thessalonian believers will be counted worthy and given ultimate relief one day. The flip side of this confidence we have to comment on without question. It's difficult, but we can't avoid it just because it's difficult. The flip side is for those who have no connection with God, there will be punishment. There will be retribution, Paul's word. Verses 8 and 9, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Now, some of us, when we hear this, we tend to think that this whole idea is archaic, it's petty, and it's unworthy of a God who loves and forgives. A quick comment. Honestly, I think there's something that beats deeply in all of our chests that cries out for this kind of ultimate justice. We know it's right. We know that there must be a reckoning that we don't always see in this life. Again, D.A. Carson offered an interesting illustration. A number of years ago, a British soldier brutally murdered, beat and murdered his wife and his son in a fit of rage. In the trial, the soldier pled guilty. 
and talked about how he was racked with shame and guilt. And the judge in the trial acquitted the soldier on the grounds that he had suffered enough because of his own sense of shame. And the interesting thing is that there was a huge public outcry against the judge's decision. And Carson makes this observation. It was an outcry that came from many of the same kind of people who cannot imagine a holy God executing on his holiness and justice. God will eventually right all wrongs. Unconfessed distance and sin will be accounted for. This is the message. Jesus affirmed it. So did the prophets and all of the followers of Christ. And the thing we need to remember is that this view of things, this reminder, this sense of where reality is headed, it was part of the framework for how Paul prayed. With this in mind, he offers his prayer request. So when Paul prays, he prays with eternity in mind and with thanksgiving in mind. And that sets the stage for his prayer. So the substance of prayer. Now, we're going to add a couple more pieces to the framework in just a minute. But first, he offers up a prayer with this in mind, and then he prays for this. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. I wish we had a long time with these two phrases because they're rich with Paul's most important words and language. But let's do this quickly. First of all, Paul prays that his friends might be counted worthy of God's calling. This word calling is an interesting one. Often this word was used in ancient Greek and sometimes in the New Testament it was used in the sense of an invitation like Diane inviting some of you to a party. Hey, Tom and Becky, would you come to a party at our house? This is exactly the way that word is used. For instance, in one of Jesus' stories, he tells a story in Matthew chapter 22 about a king representing God who has a banquet, and he calls people to come. He invites people to come, and they can reject that call. But for Paul, he never uses the word call in that way. For Paul, Paul uses the word call much more like a high school football coach calling plays for his team. And those are the plays that get executed. This isn't an invitation. This is more like an order. This is effectual. This is a calling that actually happens. It has some oomph to it. The best illustration that I've seen of that is Paul's use of that. In the letter to the Romans in chapter 8, he says this in verses 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This calling is Coach God issuing a call from the sidelines, and that's the play that gets run. No matter what play Coach God calls, Paul is praying that his friends can execute it, that they can carry out what God has laid before them, the play that he's asked them to run. You know, it's completely honorable. Don't miss this. It's completely honorable to pray for someone to get the job that they really want or to be cured of cancer. We have those prayers exampled for us many times in the New Testament. But it's often even better to pray that they will be able to display God's great work in them even if they don't get the job they want. And even if cancer is not cured, 
that God's glory, that His calling would be on display in a way that their lives would be worthy of what God has asked them to go through. This is the play that God has asked us to run, and God, help us to do it in a way that's worthy of what you've done in my life. Paul prays that his friends might be counted worthy of God's calling on their lives. God has called a play, and Paul prays that his friends will execute it exactly as it has been called. This, then, is the basis for someone to be counted worthy. In effect, Paul is praying that God would so work in the lives of his friends that ultimately he would be able to count them worthy because of the work he's done. Now, in part, this sounds like Paul is praying for them that they would be able to work hard enough at what God has given them to do that they would be able to do it. And that's partly true. This is a call by the Apostle Paul. to He's praying that his Thessalonian friends would step up to what God has put in front of them. That they'd be brave and bold and strong and they'd go through it in a way that that they would step up. But something really important is missing from that. So put a semicolon there. We'll get back to it in a minute, the part that's missing. Secondly, Paul prays that by his power, God might bring to fruition every Christian's good, faith-prompted purposes. Now that is absolutely extraordinary. So we want to pause over that for a second. In effect, what Paul is saying is, we are so changed by God. We are changed by God to such a degree that you and I are filled with good, faith-filled intentions. There are good things that you and I want to do, and Paul prays, I pray, God, that the good stuff they want to do, I pray you'll bless it. I pray it will happen. So there are those there this morning who are parents of young children. And some of your desires for your kids, let's face it, are whack. If you're anything like me, you want them to be perfectly beautiful and fabulously successful and president of the United States one day and do the job right. But you also have really good God-honoring, faith-filled desires for your kids. And it is very appropriate for you to pray and for others to pray for you. God, I pray that those desires will come to fruition. That their kids will lead fruitful and successful and God-honoring lives. That they'll have marriages that scream to people around them, this is what it looks like to be somebody whose life is in connection with God. I pray, God, that you will fulfill the God-honoring, faith-filled, good intentions of your people because it's what you're doing in them. It's what you're inspiring in them. A few years ago, this little group of people here at Gateway Community Church, so if you're new here, you need to know this. This little group of people here said, let's build a facility that will be a ministry to the community around us Let's make it like a service center. Let's fill it up with activity in the community around us so that we can be a witness for how good and generous God is. We can't afford to do this, God. So we pray, first of all, that you'll bring it to fruition. Bring us some really, really rich people. And that's what you new people are. I'm just kidding. But we pray, God, that you'll bring that desire to fruition. And we've been praying that prayer for a few years, and God is bringing it to fruition. You're going to hear a little bit more about that after the service today. Let's continue with the framework, and then let's end. We're going to end with a prayer exercise. 
So the next thing he does is he gives us the goal of prayer. Now that's interesting, but hold that for a second. We'll talk about why that's interesting. Verse 12, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Okay, on the one hand, every prayer that you pray is really a goal in itself, right? You're praying that you'll get the job. And there's a built-in goal there. You want something to happen. You want to get the job. And that's appropriate and good, as we said. But Paul never forgets the ultimate goal. There's a goal even beyond the goal of your immediate prayer. And that goal is that Jesus Christ would be glorified, that Jesus would be made large, that Jesus would be bragged about, that Jesus' ultimate good and his rule would be secured. And then, weirdly, amazingly, he doesn't always throw this in, but as a framework for his prayer, and you as well, that you will be glorified in him, that your good will happen, that you'll get swept up in his greatness, that your good will be secured, good things will happen for you, that you will be made complete, that you'll be who you really are and who you were designed to be, and that you'll ultimately be transformed to be like him. Wow. Even as Paul offers up specific prayers for himself and his friends, prayers that have decided goals, he keeps the ultimate goal in mind, and that's part of the framework for how he prays. That's his mental framework. And finally, he gives us the ground for all of this. He says at the very end, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the groundwork is, this is all based on stay. Yes, this is all based on God's grace. All of this happens because of God's grace. His work in our life is a work of grace I'm reminded of another passage where Paul is speaking to a group of his friends, and he explains this in a way that's kind of mind-blowing. And this is the, you remember a minute ago I told you to put a a semicolon, we were going to finish that because it sounds like what Paul is praying is that these Thessalonian Christians would step up and they, they would execute the play that God has called no matter what it is. If it means a new job and a lot more money, that they would do that faithfully and not get lost in all that new money. And if it means that they would be rejected and not get the job, that they would do that faithfully. That they would step up and live the life worthy of their calling. It does mean that, but more than that, it means that they would simply display the work that God is doing in them. Not just His calling, but the calling made effectual. Listen to what he says to this group of Philippian Christians. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He gives us both sides of that equation. Therefore, my dear friends, he says, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out the play that Coach God has called for you. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to His good purposes. God's grace is underneath both, not just the calling on your life, but the doing of the calling. It's because of God's grace. It's according to the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's engage a prayer exercise if we can. Real quick, it's a moment of spiritual aerobics. Uh, Let's all stand together. Okay, in the Old Testament it says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. So we're going to try to say that together. I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord.
I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. Oh, pretty good. So I was going to count to three. Let's do it. I'll count to three, and we're going to say that together. Let me review it one more time. I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. One, two, three. I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. So that's our declaration this morning. We're glad to be here. We're in God's house because Jesus said, hey, whenever there are two or three of you who come together in my name, I'm going to be there, I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to be right there with you. Well, we got more than two or three, so we've got a lot of Jesus here with us this morning. And I'm glad about that. So we're going to spend a moment in prayer. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think for a second about the part of this that speaks most powerfully to you this morning. So the framework for prayer is thanksgiving. This is what he has in mind when he prays for these folks. He's thankful for God's activity in their lives. He's also mindful of where things are ultimately headed. He keeps that in mind. It's epic, but he keeps it in mind because it kind of seeks him in the right place, and it seeks him in the right place as he's praying for his friends. And then he also, he knows that his prayers sometimes are even more specific than this, and they have a goal in mind. They're things that he wants, and he's asking God for it, but he also has the ultimate goal in mind, that Jesus Christ would be made large and that his kingdom would, and that we'd get swept up in that too. And then he remembers the ground of it all, the basis for it, the foundation of it. It's the grace of God. He prays two specific things for these folks that they would be able to effectively, powerfully, courageously run the play that Coach God has called for them. And then that God would take the good intentions of their heart because some of you have come up with epically good purposes. That God would bring that to fruition and make it happen because there's so many times in our lives, right, when dreams die and we feel like it doesn't. So make it happen, God. What's the most important part of that for you? I'm setting us up because I love to see God's people connect. So I know you're shy and you're feeling shy this morning, but I want you to tell someone what's the most important part for you. You've only got 60 seconds, so let's don't gather in large crowds, but grab somebody near you. Boys and girls, listen to your moms and dads, and moms and dads connect to another adult along with your kids if you want to connect with your kids. But what part of this jumps out at you this morning, speaks to you most? Find somebody to tell that to real quick. Go. And I've seen many searching for answers far and wide, but I
Who I am?